We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. And welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. To find out about the programming we have for you available, 724-365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. And on Simul TV, all you do is you go to simultv.com. On the top left-hand corner is the channel button. Click on that. Scroll down. The Exxon TV show. I'm sorry, the Exxon TV channel. And uh, all our programming is available for you right then and there. You know, it was one of those mornings. I had one heck of a weekend, and I thought last night when I went to bed, finally, that this would be the dawning of a new day. And it was. The sun came up. The birds were chirping. I let the girls out to go to the washroom. I'm talking about my three dogs, by the way, not my kids. Mind you, that has worked several times in the past, but they don't live here anymore. Um, And as I'm drinking my coffee, watching Fox and Friends, they're talking about these one million UFO enthusiasts who are going to go down and invade Area 51. And one of the proponents of the <laughs> the dim-witted UFO enthusiasts who really think they can actually do something down there was Annie Jacobson, who wrote a book all about Area 51 and what the government is supposed to be doing there. You know, crashed UFOs, dead aliens, live aliens. And we're not talking about the ones from Mexico, by the way. We're talking about the ones from outer space. Uh, that's how my day started. And, and as I was thinking during the day, who could I bring on the show this hour who could help me make some semblance of sanity out of a lot of the insanity when it comes to the UFO phenomenon, uh, uh, you know, the uh, alien abduction scenario, and the other things that you and I and the other members of the Exxon Nation talk about. And of course, one name came to mind right away, Kevin Randall. Now, as you all know, Kevin was uh, down in Roswell. We did, I believe four to six shows with Kevin from down there. He had some great guests on. He had uh, Kathleen Martin, and he had uh, Don Schmidt, and some other great guests that you'll be able to listen to on his radio show here on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Uh, He's also the author of Encounter in the Desert, and for more information about Kevin, visit kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And joining me now from somewhere in the United States, behind the microphone of fate, fame, and fortune, is my good friend, Kevin Randall. Hey, Kevin. Welcome back. Hey, how's it going, Rob? It's going pretty good. Uh, what did you make of these people, all million of them, who are anticipating going down to Area 51 and, and uh, you know, kind of invading it? Well, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this because i got to get in my car so I can join them in this insanity. Well, I'm glad you're going to be doing a live show from there. Great. <laughs> uh, the, the thing that struck me when I heard this, 
the first thing that struck me was, you know, there's signs posted all around them that yeah. deadly force is authorized. Yes. So that, uh, you know, the guards want to, they can start shooting them. Now, Kevin, as a, as a former member of the, of the military, a ranking uh, lieutenant colonel, these people, whether they're American citizens or not, if they, in fact, invade, and I'm putting that in air quotes, invade Area 51, not only are they breaking federal law, but aren't they doing a lot more than that? Like, you know, invading a U.S. military base? Well, that's basically the federal law. Um, they're not authorized on the base. The fa place is fenced, mm -hmm. and they could all be arrested. I don't know where they'd put those people, since we've managed to fill up all the other um, <clears throat> stockades on the borders. But the thing that strikes me is um, this is a facility, which isn't a bunch of a secret anymore. Right. But deadly force is authorized. The guards can kill them. And I don't think they've thought this thing through, not to mention it's kind of hard to get out to that area. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure. I'm not sure they're going to get a million people out there anyway. But right. uh, it's just uh, pure insanity. The other thing is I've always thought that Area 51 and <clears throat> that facility is where we are developing the next generation of military aircraft. Right. So there's top secret stuff going on there. But the whole idea that aliens are being kept there or crashed spaceships are stored there came from Bob Lazar. And the problem with Bob Lazar is many of the things he said about his own credentials turned out not to be true. So is he a credible source? Yeah, it appears that he worked at Area 51 for mm -hmm. a few weeks. He has a W-2 form that showed he was paid. Um, <clears throat> but I think he had something of a low-level job. But the real point is, you know, he claimed to have been I think uh, uh, had attended MIT. They have no record of that. So he said some things like that are that are very problematic. So the idea is that, that that we have the spacecraft there and the aliens there is probably not true. And even if it was true at one point, mm -hmm. if I was a government, I'd have moved them a long time ago. So they'll they wouldn't find what they're searching for. So it's just an insane idea. I found it rather amusing, especially since Annie Jacobson was there, and a lot of the information that she has in her book is is loosely researched. And um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I can just imagine. It rem reminded me of a scene from, um, what was the name of that movie? Uh, do, 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 the one with uh, Will Smith in it. Oh, Independence Day. Right. You know when the, when the little black little black uh, flying saucers come out of the mothership as it's approaching Area 51? Yes. I could just see that happening. You know, here you have all these all these UFO enthusiasts. Now, not all the UFO enthusiasts, Exxon Nation, in my book, are a rather loopy bunch. There are quite a number of, of really sincere, very educated, smart, dedicated believers out there. And you know, that's great. But when you get these people who think they're going to invade Area 51 and expose the the bodies of the aliens or so on and so forth, I, I think there leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to the amount of fruitcake that is left in their Christmas tree nut bag in their head. The other problem, simply, is we've worked very hard 
to bring some credibility to the UFO field. Exactly. We've tried to embrace the scientific method. Mm-hmm. We've tried to vet the witnesses. Sometimes we failed and gotten caught, but but it's usually us in the in the UFO community who expose these people when we find out the truth about right. them. It's not the skeptics. It's not the debunkers. It's we in the field. We look at the past cases and try to bring some again scientific method to it. Look for more information, new information on it, and then. We, we work this hard to get this set up, and then we get these idiots going to show up uh, and invade Area 51 to find the alien bodies. It does not help at all. You know, you, you spent, what, how many days in Roswell were you during the festivities last week? I was there for the entire thing. I arrived on a Thursday and left mm-hmm. on Monday morning. But the, the festival began Friday morning and ended uh, late on Sunday, Sunday evening. So I was there for the entire festival. And uh, how many people would you say attended the festival? Were there any Tens estimations? Of thousands. Really, eh? It was it was it was a mob. It was a mob scene, um, going in and out. Usually, the, all the hotels are booked. Right. And uh, the streets are closed off. Main Street is closed off. I have actual photographs, which I'll put up on my blog when I get that part of the story written uh, of the streets being closed off, and all the businesses in the downtown area have some kind of name that relates to um, aliens. The the McDonald's has a UFO-shaped entrance to it. The Dunkin' Donuts has a big alien standing outside of it. Uh, so, I mean, it's become a real, I guess, tourist boom yeah. for, the, for the city of Roswell. And literally hundreds of thousands of people go through their international UFO museum on a yearly basis. So it brings a lot of um, economic development into the Roswell area. It's been great for them. And I would imagine outside Taco Bell they have uh, an alien there too, as well as behind the counter and cooking. I will just not let that one that slip with a by. Pole. <laughs> and I've never seen a pole more taller than five foot nine. <laughs> Kevin Randall is my guest this hour, Exxon Nation. If you would like to find out more about Kevin, you can listen to Kevin on the Exxon Broadcast Network. The name of his show is A Different Perspective. And uh, he is the author of a great book entitled Encounter in the Desert. For more information on Kevin Randall, visit him online at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And Kevin Randall and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Now, the X-Zone, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And we're here Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. 10 p.m. It feels like 10 a.m. sometimes, but 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And you're listening to the Exxon Broadcast Network, where we search for the answers but demand the truth. Don't go away. wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
Welcome back, everyone. Kevin Randall is my guest, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. He is the host of A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And to find out when you can listen to Kevin on the network, just go to our main website at xzbn.net, look at the broadcast schedule, and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, Kevin, always great having you on the show. So would you say, then, that the Roswell Festival is like, is a version of Mardi Gras in Roswell, New Mexico? Oh, I think so. I think it's uh, a lot of people come to party. A lot of people come to see the uh, the museum and, mm-hmm. and uh, see the presentations. And they they bring in a whole host of people to make presentations. Uh, Travis Walton was there. Tom Carey was there. Don Schmidt was there. Uh, your good friend Daryl Sims was there. No, Daryl yeah, Sims was there. Yeah. And uh, Kathleen Martin, as you said, Alexandro Rojas uh, was there. So it, they make presentations. You have an opportunity to talk to uh, people. You get an idea of what they're looking for. And uh, some people just come to have fun and uh, enjoy all the uh, festivities. festivities that go along with the festival. I, I, think, I think I said the main street was blocked off. Mm-hmm. Um, main drag through town blocked off with all kinds of vendors and things like that uh, there as well. So it's uh, it's it's quite the thing. You can go for the, the research. You can go to... Um, participate in some kinds of workshops. You can just go to talk to the people who are writing the books or doing the research. Uh, so there's all kinds of things for people to do uh, in Roswell during the during the festival. After all the years since 1947 to this year, 2019, has there been any significant find that could prove that a UFO did crash in Roswell, New Mexico, and that uh, extraterrestrial bodies were actually in the UFO, as so many believe? I looked at the Roswell case a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and as we mentioned at the beginning of my show, I, I, I wrote the book, Roswell in the 21st Century. A great book, by the, the way. The upshot of that was, looking at it, we have limited documentation, which doesn't lead us to the extraterrestrial. We have an F- FBI document that kind of suggests the balloon explanation is a hoax. Right. We have newspaper clippings and articles, which I think is important when you compare it to some of the other stories of crashes where there's nothing in the newspapers. So we can we can verify that something happened and an announcement was made. We have not found any journals, any diaries, any letters from anybody who was involved in this thing in 1947. And I can kind of understand that from the military perspective, because they would have been told this is if, if it had happened and it was an alien spacecraft, that this is a classified event. You can't right. talk about it to people who are not cleared to to uh, hear about it. Uh, but there's a lot of civilians involved as well. And you would think somebody would have written something. The only thing we really have is Inez Wilcox, who was the wife of Sheriff Wilcox. And I guess back in that era, when you elected the sheriff, um, you also got the wife as the matron for the jail as well. So she kind of worked in the jail. And I think she did an article she wrote it for Reader's Digest, I think, called Four Years in the County Jail. And the twist was she was kind of working as the matron. And in that story, that article she wrote, there was this uh, one long paragraph about the, the the spacecraft crash. The problem with it is it is in addition to the original article she wrote. There's no date on it. And clearly she could have made that edition after everything broke in 1978. So it really doesn't. It's not the kind of thing we were looking for. You know, if she dated it, the article in the middle of, um, you know, the 1970s, for example, that would have been great. 
But we don't have anything like that, and we've looked and looked and looked. The the closest we have now is something called the Ramey Memo, and General Ramey was the commanding officer of 8th Air Force, which was a parent organization to the 509th and Roswell. And he was in his office, and a reporter from the uh, Fort Worth Star-Telegram showed up, took photographs and did a story about mm -hmm. the uh, events in Roswell. The very last paragraph of the story said it was identified as a weather balloon which by the time the reporter got there, they had, they were pressing that story around. But Ramey's holding a document in his hand, and you can almost read it. There are some words on it you can read. Fort Worth, Texas, weather balloon, suggesting it's from Roswell. Providence is well known. General Ramey's holding the thing in his hand, and I found documentation that was put on the um, INS wire service, a news service, um, international news service, I think it was, in 1947, July 8th, 1947, even though the time it was broadcast or, or transmitted. Wonderful provenance for this thing. We just can't read it. And uh, the last time um, I was involved in anything in depth with that was when I went down to Fort Worth with uh, Josh Gates for his program, and they brought in a guy, a um, photo interpreter, uh, analyst to, to look at it. And he could almost make out some of the stuff. And I think that the, the thing that was said was, if the photographer had only been a foot closer or he'd been a little bit to the left or right, they would have gotten a better better shot of the, the document. We just can't read it. There's a suggestion. One line says victims of the wreck. If that is the correct interpretation, victims of the wreck, that suggests one thing to you, especially when we're talking about this event in Roswell in July of 1947. The other interpretation, which is not universally accepted, which is not as widely accepted, says viewing of the wreck. So we've got sort of the same letter combinations. Right. You just can't quite make it out. But, you, so, but even if it does say uh, victims of the wreck or viewing of the wreck, how does that interpret into a crashed extraterrestrial UFO? Well, that's what we were talking about with the um, why the reporter was out there talking about the crashed UFO. Weather balloons not going to have victims. No, I, un I understand that, and I agree with that 100%. But is there it possible is that Ramey just grabbed a piece of paper off his desk that just happened to have a wreck and witnesses on it, that it has nothing actually to do with the events in Roswell, New Mexico? That's one of the problems we're running into, yeah. but it talks about weather balloons. That is mm -hmm. suggestive of this event that took place in Roswell. We, we cannot read enough of it to make a good interpretation of but it. But has anybody checked to see if there was actually, not maybe not in Roswell, New Mexico, but somewhere else in the United States, that there was a wreck of a weather balloon and there were victims? Maybe somebody got bonked on the head by a piece of equipment that the weather balloon was carrying as it plummeted to Earth. There, there is no reason for that information to go to the 8th Air Force headquarters. Mm, okay. Um, it's pretty clear. J. Bon Johnson, who was a reporter, said at one point that he had brought the teletype message from the news um, newspaper office mm -hmm. with him, and he had handed that to Ramey. If that's true, then that sort of sucks the importance out of the document. If it was something that came through the communications center at, the, at 8th Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth, then that gives it a different interpretation. And there should be clues in the text of the message. If we could read the entire message, there would be clues in the text that would give us that sort of information. The problem is we can't read enough of it with enough certainty to make those kind of inter 
in the determinations. Uh, David Rudiak has done a lot of work on this, and he's come up with the entire, uh, what he thinks is a proper interpretation of the entire memo. What bothers me is there's no jargon in it, no mm -hmm. military jargon. And I've been in meetings where the jargon was flying so fast and furious that it was like a foreign language, and it was almost impossible to keep track of what people were saying. Um, there's no military designations in it. It, mm. it doesn't look like it's a military teletype, but it could well be. So there's problems with it. And we're hoping that if we could read it, and that may never happen, it may be that we've just gotten to the point where we've exhausted everything we can do, given that the fact that it's on film and given the fact it's not quite head on. And the guy is a, the, the focus. The point of focus was General Ramey and not the message in his hand. We may have taken it as far as we can take it. And we may never, ever, ever be able to read it. If we can read it, it may give us a wonderful clue about what happened in Roswell. It may suggest aliens or it may be something completely and totally mundane. Right. The other thing is we know in the Roswell area and that would include the Fort Worth area and all around uh, what eastern New Mexico and western Texas, mm -hmm. that there were no military aircraft that crashed. There was nothing that uh, would would produce victims. So that that's one of the things that, that we're looking at. But at this point, you can't really say one way or another whether or not uh, this deals with an alien spacecraft. It might, it might not. We, we, we just don't have enough information to tell. In your opinion, Kevin, what would have happened if Stanton T. Friedman, who passed away earlier this year, would not have been involved in the Roswell case? Do you think the Roswell case would have just slipped into the dark uh, darkness of forgetfulness? No. Len Stringfield, who is a, a very serious researcher living in Cincinnati, Ohio, was doing something that he called crash retrievals. Mm -hmm. And he was looking at stories of proposed crash retrievals and that sort of thing. And he also got on to the Jesse Marcel story, Jesse Marcel being the air intelligence officer, who kind of started the whole thing. And so the story would have, the story would have built, built from there. And we've got other UFO crash retrieval stories that have uh, hit the big time Aztec uh, being one of them. Uh, so I, th I think it would have got to play. It it was kind of dying out in 1990 when Don Schmidt and I began our investigation simply because uh, Stanton was off on MJ-12 and others weren't paying a lot of attention to Roswell. So we kind of we kind of uh, revitalized the whole thing in uh, 1989, I think, is when we began our investigation. All right, Kevin, stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our commercial break. And Exxon Nation, my guest this hour is Kevin Randall. He's the host of A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And Kevin's show can be heard each and every day at different times to make sure that we hit all the time zones. And if you'd like to find out when his show is on, visit www.xzbn.com and check out the broadcast schedule. He's the author of encounter in the desert and his website is kevinrandall.blogspot.com and kevin and i will be back on the other side of this news break as we continue here in the x-zone from our broadcast center and studios in hamilton ontario canada i'm rob mcconnell don't go away Wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. 
Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Explanation. Kevin Randall is our guest this hour. He is the host of A Different Perspective radio show on the Exxon Broadcast Network. He also has a very interesting book that's available, Encounter in the Desert. We're going to be talking to Kevin about that later on in this hour. And for more information about Kevin, he's got a great website, super articles at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. So what did you come away with uh, after your visit to Roswell, New Mexico? I mean, besides... You know, having great guests on your show and meeting some of the other interesting people that you must have met in your journeys. Did you come, did you come away with anything new pertaining to the case or, well, they, or you the folks fo- in general? About, we were having a panel discussion. Mm-hmm. We, had, we ended up doing four hours, two on Saturday night, two on Sunday night. Right. And one of the panelists was Frank Kimbler, who lives in Roswell. He teaches, I guess, geology at the New Mexico Military Institute. And he's been all over New Mexico, and he's been out to the debris field, the crash sites, looking for metallic debris. And I said something that we were kind of talking about earlier, which was the Ramey memo and how, yeah. you know, we, we haven't found anything like that, and we don't have any metallic debris. And Frank said, well, he had some, he'd found some things out there that were problematic, and he'd, he'd submitted them for analysis. He did say, the, the one thing that caught my attention, he did say that he has problems finding laboratories to do independent analysis simply because the moment you miss, mention Roswell, they want nothing to do with you because they're afraid of their reputations being sullied. But, and I've run into that myself with trying to get people to uh, help out with, with the, the analysis of the Ramey memo, for example. Same, same kind of thing is happening. You know, once, you, once they find out it has to do with Roswell, they're just really not interested in doing that. But he mentioned that he'd found some interesting bits of metal out there and undergoing analysis. Problem is we don't have any of the anal- analyses yet to, to say whether or not this can be uh, identified as alien material. And I, my, my big fear in something like that has always been that uh, you have a real, honest-to-God piece of alien technology. You found mm-hmm. a piece of metal that comes from a real spaceship, and you submit it for analysis, and they say, yeah, it's aluminum. You know, no way to prove that it was created on another planet. It's just that mundane. So um, he talked about that, and I, I bring him up because he and I share an interest in uh, lost gold and buried treasure stories. And one of those is the Lost Adams, which was a placer gold deposit in, turned out, south uh, western New Mexico. Uh, Adams came out of it in, like, 1880 and was talking about how he, had, he and a group of men had followed the Apaches into this area where they were allowed to pick up the gold in the placer department, deposit, but they couldn't go above the falls, and they did that. And the Apaches killed them all except Adams, and he got away. And I've been fascinated with the story mm. since I saw a movie called McKenna's Gold. Uh, Frank tells me he's found the place. He's found the lost Adams diggings. And I asked him about it. And he says, yeah, it's uh, called uh, Apache Box Canyon. You can Google it. He says the landmarks that Adams talked about are there. And he's been to the place. And he's 
it, it's not as littered with gold as it had been, but it, there's bits of gold there. Uh, plaster deposit is there. So wow. he may have actually found it. And I found that fascinating that he's actually been there, but has nothing to do with UFOs and, and alien spaceship crashes. It's just another interest that uh, I shared with some of the people. So it was something that new came, that came out of the yeah. Roswell uh, Festival. That is interesting. Uh, I, I remember on one of your shows you had... It had nothing to do with UFOs, but you had the guy on. I can't remember his name. Uh, Pleskett, Keith Pleskett. That's it. Well, and and, and that was you know uh, that came about because I had been reviewing on on my blog the mm-hmm. uh, the Treasure Quest show. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I had said something about the um, uh, mission they had gone to. And how that uh, if you Google Earth the mission, they're they're traipsing through the jungle, and, and he has this flashback to Vietnam and all of this stuff. And you Google Earth the mission, and you find out you know there's like a highway 100 yards away, <laughs> and 12 miles away uh, was a nice little town with a Sheridan Resort. And Blasquette sent me an email, and he was mad as hell about that me doing that. But we had him on the show because it was something that I found interesting. I get a lot of uh, response on the blog yes. as well yeah. about it. And the things that he said were just extraordinary. I, you know, I'd say, well, you know, uh, how did all this come about? And he would say, well, we were cast. And he's talking about, you know, we didn't know what we were going to do until we got our scripts the next day. Scripts the next day. Yeah. And uh, when he had a, what what really annoyed me was this flashback to Vietnam because I get really tired of people talking about being Vietnam veterans and they're not. If you go to 187th Assault Helicopter Company um, and look at their website, you'll find my picture as one of the pilots from the from the unit from 1969. So I mean, I can prove I was a Vietnam veteran is the point. But looking at the, um, I found uh, his his. Um, Facebook page and looked at it and he was wearing his Navy uniform and on it he was wearing the proper medals uh, and and ribbons for uh, Vietnam service. But he was talking about his two tours in Vietnam and I found out what he meant was he'd uh, been there for a while, gone on R&R and came back. So he got two tours and I'm thinking, well, geez, I have two tours then and everybody had two tours because we went went on R&R in the middle of our our tours there, but we had to come back. It was really just a single tour. But the point was he sent me this uh, this nasty letter and I wrote back to him and invited him on the show and he kind of exposed the whole thing for the um, scripted program that it was. And then another one of my favorite shows was your interview with Christopher Montgomery. <laughs> my good friend, Christopher Montgomery. <laughs> well, the, the thing that I've noticed is in today's world, it's so easy to get a book published. You don't have to have a really in-depth knowledge of the, um, the topic. Well, hell no, and you I, just self-publish. They're self-published. They're mm-hmm. on Amazon. So yeah. it's like they're really published. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, and he was saying some nasty things about me in the book, which were untrue, and so I thought I'd have him on the show and talk about it. My goal was to get him to hang up, to question him to the point where he'd just get so annoyed he'd hang up, and I was asking questions that were legitimate. He was talking about Maury Island, for example, and I uh, was, well, did you know that Ray Palmer, the science fiction editor of Amazing Stories, was one of the um, instigators of the Maury Island story? Well, no, he didn't know that. You know, and it got to the point where he was saying that I was nothing but a shill for the Air Force. And I wanted to know where I knew I wasn't a shill for the Air Force. And I wanted to know where he got that information. What was his source? Because the source is wrong. You have no obligation to protect the source if the story's not true. And he wouldn't give us give me an answer. It boiled down to he kept saying no comment, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
But the point is, you look at his book, and it's very superficial. It's like he trolled the internet, picked some cases that interested him, and didn't do in-depth research, didn't find out what else had been written about this stuff, found what he wanted, and wrote his book, and went off on a tangent. Yeah, he, I, you know, I, I think uh, how the how the series of events was, I had him on my show, and then he said some nasty things about you, and I contacted you, and I said, listen to this clip. And then, he, what happened the final time? He just did, refused to come on? I wrote him after he'd hung up, and he yeah. claimed that the Skype had gone out or something, and we knew that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. But I wrote him an email, and I said, we didn't get to finish our story and, and uh, to talk about it. Let, uh, come back on, and let's see what we can iron out here. And he wrote back, and he said, well, that was a good idea, but he'd like to make a, um, read a, a prepared statement, and then he wanted a list of the questions I would ask. And I told him, nah, it's not going to be a prepared statement. But he was smart enough, he could have got it in. And I sent him 50 questions, detailed questions, that would have required hours and hours of research. <laughs> Uh, you know, the questions I could answer in a minute, because I've done the hours and hours of research, but he just, he, after that, he never contacted me again, and that was the end of that. Um, I think if you're going to write a book, you should be prepared to defend the book. Definitely. If you can't defend the book, then you should admit that. I have never um, walked out of an interview, I've never hung up on a on a, a host of a program, even when the questioning becomes a little bit uh, tense. I figure if I can't defend the book, then um, I have more research to do, and I, I should admit that. So uh, I know others. Philip Class has hung up on. Uh, Philip Class had hung up on um, shows, and others have done that because they just couldn't answer the questions, and they just didn't like the tone of the conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking we got to be prepared to do all of that and answer the questions, even if they're. Um, Somewhat hostile questions. Well, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, Kevin, because you and I talk so much and uh, together, and you know, I, I have the occasion to work with you. Um, I, I've had a few guests hang up on me. No, yeah, I'm just. telling you, yes, yes, and I, I really don't know why. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's it's with with uh, my pal Christopher. It was because he couldn't answer the questions. Yeah. And and he he didn't like the hostile environment. I'm thinking you started it. He created the hostile environment. Absolutely. Yeah. Had he not said those bad things, he and I probably wouldn't have had the discussions. He wouldn't have been on your show. Yeah, there would be no reason to bring him on. But since he was <laughs> accusing me of these sorts of things, I thought I had an obligation to not only the uh, uh, UFO field, but to the listeners of the program to clarify these situations and he, and, did, uh, yeah. he couldn't do it oh my goodness when we come back from this commercial break Kevin I'd like to talk to you about Encounter in the Desert the book that we've been talking about and uh, you know the other great books that you've written so explanation on the other side of this break when we uh, come back for our final segment Kevin Randall will be with us we're going to be talking about uh, Kevin's book Encounter in the Desert and for more information about Kevin Randall visit his website www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and as I've been saying over the last uh, 45 minutes if you'd like to uh, listen to Kevin and his very popular radio show on the Exxon Broadcast Network it's entitled A Different Perspective and it's heard seven days a week at different times throughout the day so no matter where you are in the Exxon Broadcast Network listening area you too will have the opportunity 
of joining Kevin's show and listening to his fascinating guests. I'm Rob McConnell. This is The Exxon, and I'll be back on the other side as we wrap up this hour here in The Exxon with our guest this hour, Kevin Randall. Again, his blogspot, kevinrandall.blogspot.com. up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in this is your sign to thank them and if you're that friend this is us saying thank you now get a sausage McMuffin sausage biscuit sausage burrito or hash browns choose two for $2.50 enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2 price of participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal single item at regular price ba-da-ba-ba-ba And welcome back, everyone. This is the final hour of this edition of the Exxon Radio Show with uh, yours truly, Rob McConnell. My guest this hour is Kevin Randall. He's the host of A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And for more information about Kevin, uh, you can, he's got a great blog spot where you can find out all about Kevin, the books he has available at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. First of all, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's always a great pleasure talking to you here on the show and working with you on your show. And uh, to you and the many members of the military out there who sacrifice so much for our freedom and our democracy, thank you, sir, for your uh, service. I appreciate that. Kevin, one of the things that, that I, I've been meaning to ask you, but every time I have the opportunity of speaking with you, I, I forget, and I made myself a little note. What is, your, what is your opinion about the theory about reversed engineering being proof of extraterrestrial existence? I think that came about mainly from a guy named Philip Corso, who claimed he had been given bits and pieces of um, the metallic debris to uh, uh, feed into the manufacturing arena, mm-hmm. the in- industry, to find out if they could uh, develop things from that. I don't think there's really much to that, because everything that he talked about, uh, night vision, for example, or... or transistors or that sort of thing you can go back to the scientific papers from from the 30s and early 40s and see the evolution of these products so it wasn't some kind of sudden quantum leap so when you look at that sort of thing there's really no great evidence of that i've often said and it used to be a great way of doing it but in today's world not so much if you took a vcr and a videotape and a power supply back to merlin the magician and for those of you who don't know, VCR would be video cassette recorder. And you had a piece of black ribbon, the, the videotape, black ribbon, and told him to decode it. Well, to do that, you have to understand two things that are invisible, electricity and magnetism. He didn't have the cultural elements. He didn't have the scientific knowledge to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think if you've got an alien spacecraft, that they, their technology would be so far superior to us, we'd be in the same boat as Merlin would be in. We don't understand 
how to reverse engineer it yet. As our technology evolves, I'm sure that we would apply that technology to the, the craft to try to learn some of the secrets, but I just think the technology would be so far advanced that we might not be able to understand it for 100 years if, in fact, we had a UFO. Yeah, you see, that's the question I posed to uh, Seth Shostak from SETI. How do you know that what you're listening for is actually being sent back, but because of the technology that you're using, you're just missing everything. And and that's what a lot of us have talked about in in the UFO community and mm -hmm. in the science fiction community, for that matter. You know, what if uh, what if the aliens, wherever they happen to reside, no longer bother to use radio? Yeah. Or what happens or if the aliens they, are not carbon based, but let's say silicon based? Or let's say they have telepathy. Yeah. And have no need for radio or anything like that, so they never developed it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we might be looking for a signal that, or, or, or they might have evolved beyond radio and the radio and television to another way of uh, putting out the information. Maybe they stream everything. So you don't have the signals bouncing all around the universe mm -hmm. or the galaxy. <laughs> so we might be looking at the wrong place. We might be looking for the wrong stuff. With the wrong technology. With the wrong technologies, yeah. exactly, yeah. Kevin, tell us about Encounter in the Desert. This is the Bonnie, this is the Barney. This is the uh, Lonnie Zamora story. He was mm -hmm. the police officer in Socorro, New Mexico in April of 1924, 1924, April 24th, 1964. I was thinking that this is my niece's birthday, April 24th, and that got me off on a bad tangent there. Um, chasing a speeder through, through Socorro, heard an explosion or a roar on the outskirts of town, thought a dynamite shack had blown up, drove his patrol car there, and in the arroyo, as he came over the crest of a hill, he thought he saw an overturned car, um, went down, came up again, saw, thought he saw two beings around it, and uh, got a little bit closer, but they ran around behind the craft. It lifted off in a roar and was gone. So you've got, you've got a police officer making this, making this statement. Within minutes, literally within minutes, his friend Sergeant Sam Chavez was there, didn't see anything, but saw the remains of a, a sort of a, a bush that had been scorched by the mm. flame of the thing and grass that had been slightly burned and four landing gear impressions. So it was physical evidence left behind. And then within 90 minutes or so, the FBI and the military was involved. And from that point on, you had an awful lot of people on that site looking at it. Uh, Hector Cantanella, who was the chief of Project Blue Book in, in 1964, tried to find a solution for this case, went to New Mexico, went to Alamogordo, where there was a, at Holloman Air Force Base, where there was a lot of experiments going on, White Sands, New Mexico, with a lot of experiments going on, looking for something that would account for the sighting. And he could not find it. It's one of the very few cases in the Project Blue Book files, which is labeled unidentified, where you've actually seen physical beings. There were other witnesses involved, and we know this, because uh, they had called the police station prior to Zamora reporting in with what he'd seen. Three people had called in. The uh, dispatcher didn't bother to take their names. And uh, Richard Holder, who was a, an army captain who was involved in the investigation within 90 minutes, in his report he wrote that very night, mentioned that three people had called the police station. So we have some good evidence that there were other calls coming in about this case. Nobody tried to find him. Hmm. 
The fight path was known. Socorro wasn't that big. Somebody could have knocked on some doors sure. and seen if they to try to find something. Nobody bothered to do that, which gives you an idea of how good the investigations were at that time. But the point is, you know, it's a book about that sighting and all this information is laid out and and what the Air Force did, what the APRO um, Aero Phenomena Research Organization people did. That would be Coral and Jim Lorenzen, what the NAGCAP guy did, which was Ray Stanford. Um, you know, all these people, what their role was and what they saw and what they heard from Lonnie Zamora. So it's a book that looks at all of that and looks at some other cases that are closely related to it that suggests maybe a pattern that suggests other cases that should have been uh, brought forward but were not back in 1964. Who called the military? Who called the FBI? Or did they just show up unexpectedly? That, you know, it's not clear how they got involved. Mm -hmm. One of them is that uh, Holder had been called here. His his people had been called at the uh, at their station in on the White Sands Missile Range, and then Holder called the FBI, or the FBI got called first and called Holder. It's not clear who called whom to get them involved in this thing, but they were there within ninety minutes, and that's been documented by the the, the uh, materials that were created that very night. So they were they were definitely involved. Then Hynek, J. Allen Hynek from mm -hmm. the um, the Air Force consultant on UFOs, he was there with Sergeant Moody, who was the official investigator, was there three or four days later. So, uh, you know, we, we've got all that documented through the Air Force files and what APRO had and the NICAP files and all of that sort of thing. In your opinion, Kevin, what is the hardest part today of being a UFO investigator and author? Uh, you brought it up at the top of the show. A million people going to storm Area 51. Yeah. You know, that doesn't help. The hoaxes don't help. The jokes don't help. The belief in everything. They, they, there are people that just believe everything. No matter how crazy it is, they embrace it because it's what they want to believe. They don't look at the evidence. And I, I think that's one of the problems I have with some of my books is people think, well, you know, he's a debunker. He's just going to... Uh, um, solve everything and that's not true i'm just looking at the evidence where does the evidence take us and too often we uh, we don't allow the evidence to take us to the conclusion we decide what the conclusion is and then look for the evidence to support it two tv shows on uh, tlc that are very uh is it tlc or the discovery uh, channel or travel channel whatever uh you've got unidentified and project blue book do you think they are an asset to the ufo community or a hindrance to the ufo community it if you looked at Project Blue Book, mm -hmm. it's fiction. It's loosely based on the cases, but it's fiction. Right. I don't think it hurt, but a lot of my colleagues in the UFO community were just outraged by it and thought it d did a real disservice for it. Unidentified, and I'm going to be talking to Stephen Bassett coming up here about this because you know he's one of these people that's really involved in this thing, and he just wrote a scathing review of the last episode of Unidentified, so we're going to bring him on the program to talk about that. Uh, and, and how it may have harmed this whole idea of getting to the bottom of the UFO uh, questions. Yeah, Stephen is uh, one of the largest uh, proponents for the disclosure. Uh, and, you know, and do you think disclosure will happen within our lifetimes? I thought we were moving a little bit closer to it with what had been going on until, of course, a million people decided to stand on descend on Area 51. <laughs> but but it looked like with some of the stuff going on in the Navy, reevaluating mm -hmm. how pilots would be reporting unidentified aerial phenomenon, because we can't use the pejorative term UFO anymore. How come? 
Because of pejorative, you know, it's flying saucers for God's sakes. Now oh, it's unidentified aerial phenomenon. It's just the way it is. But uh, but as we looked at that stuff, it looked like they were getting a little closer to that. I think disclosure is really going to be in the hands of the aliens. If they're here, uh, they land and say, hey, we're here and there's no way to deny it. Disclosure has happened. But the government doesn't seem to have any motivation to do that. And of course, if you want to see aliens, all you have to do is go down to the southern border of the United States. They're there. Yeah. Yeah, there's literally hundreds of thousands of them. Kevin, as always, great pleasure talking to you, my friend. And as you know, being the host of your own show, time is of the uh, most precious thing that we have here. So I want to thank you very much for your time tonight, Kevin. Always great talking to you. Continued success, and I look forward to the next time you and I meet, either here in the X-Zone or on the, uh, in the studio of your show. Take care, my good friend, and thank you so much. Thank you. All right, X-Zone Nation, I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break. And the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, kevinrandall.blogspot.com. wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. ba 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 